Blog Talk Radio. information so that you can use it as a tool for liberation that's to help liberate your people and to help liberate humanity from all the various forms of oppression. As always, we welcome you to Africa on the Move, Sunday, June the 13th, 2020. Our theme tonight is the continuation of our past two series, part three, Forces in motion, but where is it going? Part three, forces in motion, but where is it going? That's our thing for the night, like always. We welcome you to join us by calling 323-679-0841. Call us, share your views, your perspectives, and we'd like to hear from you. Because remember... 
Without information, we can't think. We need this information. But more critically, we need organization. So we want to encourage you to join an organization. If you're not in one, join one. If you don't join one, be in one. That's the only way and the best way you can properly help move our people forward and advance your struggle and humanity. We welcome you again to Africa on the Moon, like always. Let's get started with our party by first and foremost introducing to you our political panelists and analysts for today's program. We first will bring in Brother Haki, and we'd like to welcome him to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Brother Haki. Brother Africa, thanks for having me. My name is Haki Kamafi Mishoki. Currently, we're after awareness, and of course, you know, my thing is all about institution building. Uh, now, one of the things that uh, is very, very interesting is, you know, when you look at these demonstrations that are taking place throughout the U.S. and throughout the world, the one thing we have to keep in mind is that the situation that we're confronted with, the situation humanity is confronted with, is far more grave than people would imagine. So what I'm going to do is essentially talk about the relationship between the financial sector and the nature of employment and how that impacts the African community as well as poor people generally. But in any event, the World Bank states, and this is a quote, humanity faces an unprecedented health and economic crisis that will result in a logic shock the global economy has witnessed in seven years, end quote. Per capita income, or the average of average salaries, is expected to drop at least 6.2% globally, with the developing countries' per capita salaries to drop even further. In the U.S., the per capita income of Africans is around $16,000 a year. Per capita income for African immigrants is around $20,000 a year. However, when viewing net worth, the value of all assets, like homes, cars, boats, etc., the statistical averages improve for African people. The statistical increase of net worth results from including the 10 African billionaires' worth value. <clears throat> and averaging this amount with the other African homes' wealth, which brings net worth of African people to $19,000. And this number by no means accounts for increasing unemployment among African people. Had net worth included additional unemployed Africans since the economy reopened, that 3.3 million additional unemployed people added to the already 16,000 unemployment rate that already exists among Africans would more closely reveal just how asset-starved the African community really is. So when progressive economists, economists point out the net worth of Africans is zero, this is certainly closer to the truth. Now, the repercussions of having so many people unemployed does impact the economy. This is particularly the case as economies now in recession. Recession is defined as the economy indicated because of trade and industrial shortfalls. This recession is exacerbated or made worse by two factors. One, the trade policy of the current administration, and secondly, an adequate tax base to fund industrial development. With regard to point one, the current administration has seeken ways to undermine China's development. Certainly one way would be to destroy the supply chain. Ironically, supply chains were created because of deficiency at the same time keeping prices low. By destroying supply chains, the opposite effect applies, that is, deficiencies laws in addition to increased prices in terms of the kind of commodities that people need, need to survive. In addition, rising unemployment, which affects the U.S. economy as well as its people's opportunities for jobs. The current administration is proposing an economic prosperity network, acronym EPN. Now, the focus of EPN is to encourage Western nations to decouple from China and move businesses from China to nations more willing to bend to U.S. dictates. 
It's believed countries like India and Vietnam could be easily manipulated to serve the interests of imperialists. Interestingly enough, discussions to bring back jobs to the U.S. were not viable because such a move would require government subsidies for these companies in the U.S., and as such, would not be efficient or profitable because of the increased costs associated with production. In other words, subsidies have to be <coughs> repaid through higher taxes, either through higher government taxes or value-added taxes, which we, the consumers, have to pay. So we're talking about essentially high prices to buy food, goods, and services. Now, the point number two. Now, according to the Treasury Inspector General, 879,415 wealthy people owe more than $45.7 billion in uncollected taxes. He goes on to say, of that number, 369,180 uh, uh, tax returns are simply disregarded by the IRS, while another 510,235 are sitting on the desk of the IRS. In a time of recession, revenues are desperately needed by the government. The revenues can be used to fund infrastructure repairs leading to more employment. So why doesn't the government seek to recoup the old taxes? Of course, accounting laws <clears throat> are written so as to be so vague that a good accounting attorney could tie up courts for years. But I suspect the real reason why they refuse to go after the wealthy for paying their taxes has a lot to do with in terms of the corporate lobby effort uh, you know, of the wealthy in terms of lobbying, lobbying Congress. In fact, one of the real problems in terms of, you know, when we think back in 1997, uh, the number of IRS agents were 101,000 people. Currently, it stands under 76,000 people. And, and the problem is that when we talk about this reduced number of IRS agents, it means it makes it very difficult for them to monitor cases of high-powered individuals simply because they can take advantage of the accounting laws that exist in society. So these, account, these IRS agents tend to focus on the poorer segments of society, which means that the, the overwhelming number of, uh, of uh, revenues that are, that are really beneficial uh, are never, are never uh, issued because what happens is that they are no longer concerned about <clears throat> in terms of in terms of what the overall impact is to the overall economy. Now, keep in addition to the uh, $45.7 billion that are not paid, $32 trillion, uh, we have the problem of $32 trillion of offshore accounts, money which the government doesn't have access to, in addition to corporations not paying their fair share taxes. So we got this, we, so we have a situation where fundamentally where uh, a large section, well, not large section, a smaller section of society, by virtue of having access to all the wealth, don't pay taxes, which means uh, negatively impacts the overall economy. And that's something that, as, as, as working people, as African people, we have to be concerned about in terms of the overall impact. Now, so what does all this mean for the African community? One, the structured nature of unemployment is a very much a part of capitalism. Paid labor impacts on profits, which is why during slavery, Africans were employed 100% of the time, even children as young as three years of age. In an era of diminished profits, with the exception of government stimulus, there's no surprise employment opportunities abound in prisons. My question to the African community is simply this. If our existence is more profitable inside of prisons, why would capitalists invest in humanity by creating jobs? So we got a fundamental problem in terms of the government's need in terms of revenue and the inability to start saying government to, uh, to, to have access to those revenues, which means that as unemployment continues to, to exacerbate, as it continues to get worse, inevitably what happens is that those positions of power have to look for a convenient scapegoat. We must understand who that scapegoat is and all the repercussions behind being a, being a scapegoat. 
So institutions are extremely important in the African community, so we have to build those institutions because these fundamental questions have to be addressed. They have to be asked. We have to strategize and plan how we're going to move forward. Rebellions are fine, but we have to have some much more substantive in terms of moving forward, and we have to have those institutions. Now, close with that, Brother Africa, and thank you for having me on the show. Uh, thank you, Brother Aki. Next, we go on to Brother Anthony. We'd like to welcome him to Africa on the Move. Welcome, Brother Anthony. Thanks for having me. <clears throat> Revolutionary greetings to you, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, Objectivist Pan Africanism, the Total Liberation and Unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Right, thank you, Brother Anthony. Father, Brother Anthony, we bring in, we'd like to welcome back our Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Move. Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice, especially the panelists, the illustrious panelists. I, I, I bear witness that there is one God, Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. I've been in, in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I called Marxism the race to cure racism. And I thank you again, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show. Okay, we have a special guest. We have joined us. We're going to bring this call in right now. We're going to ask this caller to introduce themselves, and they can make a few opening statements in terms of comments. Caller 4684-4684. Welcome to Africa on the Moon. Greetings, Brother Africa. Greetings, Greetings Brother Africa. Thank doing? you. This is I am just fine. I'm very pleased to um have the um opportunity to sit in and listen uh to some wisdom and knowledge and looking forward to um hearing the progressive uh, movement of our people. Thank you for okay. letting me speak out. Your time. And if you have any comments you'd like to make, just let us know. We're going to have your mic open. Okay? All right. Thank you very much. We, I appreciate that. What we're going to do right now, panelists and participants, we're going to pause for a call for a few minutes. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going through our first segment on what's going on in your world and the community. We'll be right back. You're listening to Africa on the Moon. So vast, so great, the African embrace, the color of life, universal harmony, the earth supports our conscious effort for sustained humanity, human beings. Human love on a spiritual tip. So vast, so great. The African embrace. 
Live beyond. Love beyond your skin to where you belong. Program off 
with our first segment of what's going on in your world and the community. If you'd like to participate in the segment and share with the world and our listening audience what's going on in your world and community, feel free to call 323-679-0841, hit 1, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. All right, panelists, you know how we do it. You know we're going to sit in the seat and we're going to take the heat. We're going to define it and we're going to do what else? We're going to stand behind it. So let's get moving. Let's get started with our party. Start off with your brother, Haki. What's going on in your world in the communities? Well, Brother Africa, you know, I have to talk about some historical wrongs committed against African people. In particular, I'm talking about slavery. One of the things when we talk about slavery, we understand that ancient Africa, that was slavery that took place. But the kind of uh, barbarism associated with slavery came along at a later time. In particular, I'm talking about Arab slavery of African people. In fact, when we talk about the encroachment into Africa uh, for this whole purpose of slavery, it began with the Arabs and not with the Western Western world. So I, anyway, I, I, I wrote this, so I think uh, it gives pause for you know people to start thinking about uh, some of the racism sort and heard and heard in terms of so, so-called Arab culture and why it must be addressed. But in any event, a racist mockery and reprehensive language directed toward African people is commonplace in Arab society. Even during Ramadan, the holiest month, racist depictions of Africans grace the TV screen in Egypt. A program entitled Azmi Way Asgan uh, features actors in blackface posted in stereotypic roles as maids, servants, and prostitutes. In Kuwait, a series called Block Gashamara, uh, it means block of jokes, portrays Kushite Nubians in Sudan as lazy or cynical. Egyptian cinema not only embodies stereotypes, goes a step further by utilizing the N-word. Much of this cinema seeks to evaluate, elevate the virtue of whiteness while demeaning blackness. Interestingly enough, most of the racist Arab programming focuses on the Kushite Nubian community. Perhaps this fixation is rooted in, resist, in the fact that the resistance against Arab domination has been a long fight, um, you know, in, 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 this, in the eastern part of, of Africa. Now, the original slavers of Africans were, as I mentioned earlier, were Arab, not white. There still exists a primitive mindset that validates the racial hierarchy in the Arab world. Tunisia, North Africa, for instance, status as slaves or Africans is encoded in the culture. Africans being <clears throat> with bearing the names of their ex-enslavers are given a designation, Atig, uh, which means free from, which precede their names. This deeply ingrained notion that African subjugation is both rational and desired continues to manifest itself in ways to reveal an explicit bias against African people. None of these Arab societies seek to create laws banning racism. In fact, in articulating Arab struggle for self-determination, self-determination for Africans is not even considered. Muslims, in fact, Muslims for America, an organization that exists in America, an organization founded by Pakistani Muslims, seeks to form an American foreign policy in the interest of Muslims, not all people, just Muslims. The focus on Islam ensured the struggle of African people would not be considered with the beneficiaries of said policy change solely benefiting Muslims, even in the African country. This propensity to prioritize African interests often run counter to African interests. In the U.S., our communities tend to focus on foreign policy. Conflict inevitably arises between African and Arab communities when Arab communities value African struggles for economic justice, ending police brutality, gentrification, and poor schools. Consequently, Arab participation in African demonstrations are very small to non existence. Perhaps 
Arab identification with whiteness is a contributing factor. The fact that 58% of Arab immigrants identify themselves as white, according to the U.S. Census, speaks volumes about a propensity to give tacit support for oppression of African people. Rahm's committed the name of Islam must be confronted. Now, valid civilizations have long been doing a masterful job resisting Arab domination and exploitation. Perhaps the biggest reason for the ridicule of Kushite and Nubian peoples by Arabs lies in the fact that Kushite and Nubians have their own culture, which dates back to the beginning of human history. It is time to acknowledge Arab nationalism is in opposition to Islamic teaching and as such should be viewed as haram. Until then, the clash of civilizations will continue. Wow, Brother Aki, you let out a big one today. That's interesting. We'll come back and speak to that somewhat, but I know we're going to have to have a special program just dealing with that phenomenon. Next, we can go to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, what's going on in your world in the community? Uh, certainly. Uh, uh, there was uh, there was uh, a, a, a murder of an African that took place over the weekend uh, in Atlanta, and uh, let's see the uh, uh, the policeman that uh, that perpetrated it was um, was fired, and the police chief resigned. Uh, and um, and to put this in context, uh, bear in mind that uh, that Atlanta has uh, has an African mayor. Uh, so I think this uh, speaks to the um, to the uh, limitations of uh, using uh, you know you relying exclusively. On the vote as a be all and end all of our uh, struggle, and that we need political organization in order to hold our leadership accountable for the decisions that they make, and that uh, and that uh, and that the uprisings that are taking place in various parts. Of the U.S. and around the world, are uh, are 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 in response to the continued police repression of uh, African working people uh, around uh, you know in the U.S. and other capitalist countries. But I think we have to have a, and understand that we will not achieve our uh, liberation. And or equality without permanent political organization. Okay, thank you, Brother Anthony. And we now will go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and the community? Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa. I want to seize the times, as they say. Um, um, I want to say that um, I stand in solidarity with the brothers in the Pan-African movement, um, um, that you know, in the spirit of W.E.B. Du Bois, um, Kwame Ture, and certainly in the spirit of the Cuban people who heroically sent troops to Angola to beat back the South African army, I think you know the, the just struggle of the people naturally support each other, and we have an international working class movement that that has solidarity and uh, internationalism, and in that spirit, I just want to. Read, uh, take about two minutes to read uh, 
a little analysis I wrote back on Thursday, February 27, 2014. Um, Dear Linda, Marxism teaches that the state or government comes about due to the emergence of class society. The existence of the state is recognition that there are classes in the social order and that one class has to control the rights of the other classes in order to dominate society and pursue its class interests. That's a basic Marxism, i.e., the state can only serve the interests of one class. There can be only one ruling class dictating its interests to the rest of the social order and thereby suppressing the interests of the other classes. In fact, the essence of the struggle reveals that there are only two classes in developed capitalism, i.e., the workers and the owners. Racism is a strategy of the only class to divide and conquer the workers in order to maximize profits. Pigmentation of the skin is not that critical otherwise. It is a tactic used by the black owners to keep their market cordoned off and exclusive to them. It is a tactic used by the Anglo owners to gain super profits above normal exploitation from the Anglo, from the people of color by uh, above normal exploitation from the people of color by pitting white workers against non-whites, telling the Anglo that they are superior and that their interest is threatened by the interests of colored people, paying Anglo workers more crumbs from the table than other workers receive. Reality is there is an Afro-American nation developed historically on the land of the Black Belt South, including Mississippi. A nation is not a race, but a historically evolved community of people. That's the fact. That's the reality. But the, quote, common sense, unquote, of the world does not accept the fact. Bill Clinton and Jimmy Carter are members of the community of the Black Bill South and are members of the Afro-American nation, just like a person born in France is French. I'm a scientist with an ideology of scientific socialism that was founded by Karl Marx and developed by Engels, Lenin, Stalin, and Mao. Trotskyites and petty bourgeois intellectuals love a variation on Jewish theory which says that ethnicity and culture are what makes a nation. They focus on the characteristic of nationhood and try to make that proof that there is a right to sovereignty for their narrow nationalist interests. Israel is founded on Jewish narrow nationalism. White nationalism is no different from black nationalism in that both are ideas being perpetuated for the interests of a few and is nothing but idealism and not dialectical and historical materialism upon which Marxism and scientific socialism is based. It shows a lack of love for people and chauvinism, a.k.a. a superiority complex in the person. It indicates a denial and hatred, ultimately of people. We are just matter that thinks there is nothing sacred about skin color. We are all humans and have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We need compassion, empathy, and caring for all people. And thank you. I'll just leave it right there, brother. Thank you for allowing me to say that. Thank you, Brother Moses. And what we're going to do right now to our special guest, we're going to see if our special guest has anything that they would like to say in terms of what's going on in their world and their community. So we'll come to back to call 4686. Are there anything that you would like to say? Say in terms of what's going on in your world and your community. Call the four six eight six. Thank you, Brother Africa. I'd just like to bring you greetings from the state of New Mexico, and um, just um, like to let you know that we're having a great, great awakening um, in the state of New Mexico. The coming together of the working people, recognizing that they only have one another, 
And because of that, there's a, a, a grassroots movement that is uh, continuing um, and bringing the people together. And so we just want to bring in some more information and um, uh, enlighten them as to the method, how to formulate, implement, uh, whatever you needed for the coming goal. Thank you. All right, Carl, let me thank you. And what we're going to do right now, we're going to take another quick session break. And when we come back, we're going to discuss some of the issues that has been stated in terms of what's going on in that world community. And um, we don't want you going nowhere. We'll be right back. You listen to Africa on the Move.
Africa on the Moon. You are listening to Africa Congo. That's the name of the song. Welcome back again to Africa on the Moon. As we stated, prior before our break, uh, we were discussing what's going on in our world and our community. And we'd like to have an open discussion among us and our listening audience. Feel free to join in by calling 323-67908. And the whole point of these discussions, these programs, is to raise critical issues and questions and to provide information so that people can think more clearly. And from time to time, we will introduce you to organizations because we recognize that the biggest contradiction that we have as oppressed people, or that all oppressed people have, is they are disorganized. So we like to encourage people to be organized, and the best way to be organized is to function within the organization. So we want to encourage you at all times, join an organization that is working to help liberate your people or to help liberate humanity from all of the various forms of oppression. And given the fact that I have stated that, we're going to have a little dialogue right now. Right now, Brother, I come to you, Brother Haki, and you open your statement and you talk a little bit about the issue of prison, prisons versus jobs, which is um, very important in terms of understanding the historical development of capitalism and undermined premise here to find ways to be productive at the least amount of cost. One of the fundamental contradictions raised was that by having prison labor, they can produce more for, and don't have to pay as much for their production. You know, so I was worried that expenses are less. So what would be the incentive if a system is based upon that to want to create jobs? That's a serious dilemma. So, Brother Haki, what do you see the solution to that? And other panelists, my guests, can chime in on that. Yeah, you know, what's interesting, Brother Africa, you know, uh, prior to 1980, this whole notion in terms of prison labor was illegal. Uh, the prisons weren't weren't allowed to compete with private industry in terms of in terms of producing or making profits. But uh, that has changed, uh, and because of this change, uh, because of um, corporate uh, lobbying efforts in, in, among the Congress, they've been successful in terms of eliminating that that, that policy. And so now they're free to utilize prisons uh, to pr- produce everything from electronics to furnishing. Uh, to airplane parts, to uh, to computers, you name it. Our corporations are making huge huge returns off prison labor, and so therefore, we have to understand that if it's all about if it's all about productivity, then certainly the the most economically convenient way to get, go about getting things done is to take advantage of people who are in fact incarcerated, because therefore, because they have no rights, they don't have any status to speak of. And you can simply take advantage of them and make huge profits in, the, in, 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 in that regard. Now, one of the things people understand, and we talk about slavery, you know, often people think about, you know, slavery existing, you know, in other places. In fact, according to the Global uh, Slavery Index, they estimate most, most of the, country, the world's slavery exists in five countries, India, China, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Uzbekistan. But they don't mention the United States. And the reason they don't mention the United States is because they're woefully ignorant of the fact that when we talk about the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, it says slavery no longer exists, but slavery can exist if the person is incarcerated. And that is the distinction that we have to understand. And so, so, so when we look at it in terms of people being incarcerated, making pennies, uh, pennies on an hour 
or people who doing who are incarcerated who actually get don't get paid anything at all. They clearly this is the epitome of slavery, and we have to confront this. Uh, and it seems to me that people who are honestly concerned about you know just propensity got to understand the inherent danger. We have a society which is predicated on nothing but profit at all at all at, at all at all expense. So if you have a situation where profit is the most important, only compelling thing to live for, then why wouldn't you exacerbate? Why wouldn't you create a situation where conceivably you can make more profit? Now, how do you make more profit? More incarceration. So when we talk about mass incarceration, we have to understand there's a science behind mass incarceration. People think they're doing it simply because they have a they have a hatred of African and or poor people. Well, it's a bit more complex than that. We got to think about see this thing in economic terms and understand the economic benefits in terms of locking up larger, increasingly larger and larger number of people. So clearly, that is a problem for the African community specifically. Uh, it's a general problem generally for poor people generally, but I think as far as African people are concerned, we got to be very, very concerned about you know just push for profits at all costs. If that means that in locking us away uh, uh, serves the interests of the ruling class in terms of making profit. Anyone else to speak to the issue of prison versus job creation or other um, means of job production? Yes. Yes, I would like to speak to that, uh, Brother Africa. There's a concrete example happening right now. Uh, the, uh, uh, the sanitation workers organized a strike for better working conditions in New Orleans uh recently and uh and the company they worked for fired them and utilized uh prison labor to replace them uh and the pris- uh uh the prisoners uh from what i read prison laborers work for below minimum wage so the company that's responsible for try uh, for trash collection, New Orleans is making huge profits at the expense of the uh, 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 masses of people in that city. So uh, you know, uh, you know, that's a concrete a- example of what uh, Brother Haki was talking about. And uh, there is, and there are conditions. Inadequate, um, you know, uh, education and uh, and and uh, you know, uh, you know, to steer people towards uh, doing engaging activity that would land them in prison. So we have to be seriously concerned about that as well. Anyone else like to say about that? My special guest, Brother Moses. If not, let me just add something to this discussion. I think that um, Chancellor Williams, who was the first prime minister of Trinidad, he wrote an excellent book called Capitalism and Slavery. And for those who haven't read that book, I would highly encourage everyone to try to get a, if they want a better understanding of what is happening today and historically what have happened to us as it relates to refunctioning under a capitalist society is to read this book called Capitalism and Slavery. By the way, um, Nkrumah put it clearly where he made a statement that, quote, unquote, slavery, capitalism is the gentleman way, 
gentleman form of slavery. It's just another form of slavery. That's what capitalism is. Because when one talking about labor, when one talking about wages, when one talking about creating wages to exchange for the value of someone's labor, that's, that's, that's what they have done. You know, they recognize that the cost it would take to try to physically force you to work became so, so, so extensive that they had to find another method. The, the, the form changed, but the essence stayed the same. They had to find another method in which um, how one would um, be able to export your label or get you to work for free. So one of the things they did was they came up with this whole concept of wages to see the value and uh, to see the value of your work and to basically get you to work for basically nothing. And that's what um, we have been functioning ever since its existence. Once it got past physical slavery, where they created a wage system in which to um, give you the illusion that you are working for something, but in reality, your labor is so heavily exploited that they reached all the profit, and the only thing you get is enough resources to come back to the plantation work. So I think this whole phenomenon, we've been dealing with it ever since our existence, and people need to be you know, conscious of it. In other response to that right now, to that particular aspect? Yeah. Yes, brother, after, yes, brother Ever. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Hello? Okay. Yes, we can. Um, I, I think, you know, the, the, what, what the brother uh, Haki and, um, and Anthony, brother Anthony, laid out is, is right on the money uh, in terms of analyzing the, and dealing with um, the various contradictions that we face and, and will be facing. Uh, certainly Malcolm X said they brought us here for a job, so, you know, we're we going to be working. That's, that, that's why we're here. Um, the question of, of, um, of, of appropriation of, of the benefits of our labor or, uh, or some kind of income from it or, or you know, the benefits of the social order and where, where society has, has organized to the point where we have free education and free health care a universal education, universal health care, um, those kind of things, you know, help put an end to the way slave system is, uh, um, it helps in the, it's in the process, you know, it's not going to happen overnight, but it's a process. And so I think, you know, the idea that, you know, free, free, um, labor more or less, uh, is, you know, is, you know, it's just not happening. There's no free labor. I mean, um, we, just like there's no free lunch, um, you know, we, that we, there's some, there's something happening, and we're gonna pay the consequences of uh, our actions if we're not conscious. I'll leave it right there. I'd like to hear from the sister from New Mexico. What does she think? Well, the mic is open. If she'd like to make a response. She can come in. Um, let me, let me, let me weigh in. Let me weigh. Yes, go ahead. Let me, go ahead, let, let me weigh in real quickly. One of the things, and when we talk about labor, Brother Africa, I think we have to be very, very clear. We're going, actually, we're going backwards in terms of labor standards. One of the things, you know, back in the um, late 18th century, there were motion studies. In other words, to complete a job, they actually measured how many movements you have to uh, enact uh, to complete a task. And those actual, those actual studies in which they actually monitor how you know you know ways which people should move to maximize their productivity or maximize the amount of products uh, they produce. Now, when we think about in the current context, we think about Amazon and we think about in terms of the conditions that people are, are, are under, and which include.
people are not taking bathroom breaks, people peeing and peeing in, in, in cups and in bottles. <laughs> and, and we think about it in terms of you know, perpetual motion of human beings. Then clearly uh, those kind of things are not in the interest in terms of not only the health, but the emotional stability of human beings. But yet the, the health or the emotional stability of human beings is not a question. It's not a concern of capitalism. The, their focus is prim- it's just money. And so to the extent that we are slaves, uh, many of us don't unrecognize that, in fact, that in fact, we are slaves. And it's good that you clarify, you know, what it is to be a slave in terms of, wage, in terms of wages. Because we think in terms of when they may pay us the, the little sums that they pay, that we actually think that, uh, that, we are, that we're really benefiting. In reality, you're absolutely correct. Um, the, the, the people, the, the, the masters of uh, production, those individuals who are behind the scene, you know, who don't do, participate in the labor, who engage in the in terms of writing policy, who engage in trade, those individuals who are truly making tons and tons of money at the expense of the people of the lower end who actually sacrifice their, their their health, their bodies for the sole purpose of creating products, for the sole purpose of them to sell, to make tons and tons of money. So the ideally it should be a situation where when people work and you produce that then there's some some should be some correlation between the value of what is produced and what people are paid. Well, the capitalists concluded that, that that's no longer a, a, a consideration simply because in capitalism you keep so many people, as Marxists would say, surplus unemployed, that you can work the hell out of those people who got a job because you know what? They're not going to say anything because they know if they say anything, they're out, and they'll be the next one in the process starts all over again. So clearly this whole inhuman aspect of capitalism is something that we have to fundamentally understand and something that we have to challenge. But first and foremost, we have to we have to uh, uh, dissuade ourselves of this notion uh, that uh, we pay, we're paid based upon what we're worth. That's simply not the case, nor in terms of uh, energy that we expand in terms of creating these products, nor in terms of the kind of uh, productivity uh, that we give to these organizations uh, and not being compensated for it. So we were very, very clear that we've been exploited on many, many levels, and until we understand the fundamental reality, we continue to play ball thinking, in fact, been thinking, in fact, we're prospering when in reality we're just being, uh, we're just being abused. Yeah, Can I add something to that, Brother Africa? Let's go after it. Sure. I want to add to a point that Haki made about, um, about you know, uh, you know, uh, wage, uh, uh, you know, slavery in effect. Uh, actually, uh, the under under imperialism that has been expanded to an international scale uh, uh, due to advances in uh, in technology and communication. Uh, production uh, uh, does not have to uh, take place where uh, at the same location where where, where the corporation is headquartered. And uh, and uh, uh, during the 20th century and into the 21st, uh, labor exploitation has expanded to an international scale, where they not only they not only can uh, that they can exploit the labor of the poorer countries of the world, and this primarily takes place in uh, Central South America and Africa and Asia. Uh, to the extent that they can actually uh, that they can uh, because they'll work even even less than workers will work inside the capitalist countries uh, because the, uh, the, 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 the the cost of living uh, you know is so high 
and also they, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, you know, the laborers in those uh, capitalist countries are more cognizant of what their human rights are. So they, uh, so, 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 so under imperialism, labor is exploited on an international scale, which is a key reason why. Uh, you, uh, you, uh, you know, uh, people in, cap- in capitalist countries should be very concerned about what happens in the in the uh, in the uh, 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 poor, uh, poor countries in the world, which are bled for their resources and their labor. Which one point you may add, and we'll move on to another point because there are so many lessons we can get from this. But we just try and share some things to may raise the consciousness of our listening audience. Um, the question where you said the so-called headquarters of a company doesn't have to be located in the same place where production takes place. That's what is happening. Is good as what's happening inside the U.S. today. If you look at many of the multi-corporations. They are running companies all over the world, other countries. And at the same time, by putting workers up against workers over here, it created a scenario where workers in the United States and the, and the damn play of not having production here in the United States and people being unemployed, those who own the companies have no allegiance to the people here. It's no longer there about national boundaries because their whole driving force is to find cheaper ways of how to produce a product. So therefore, yes, they go to other countries, have other workers work for a cheaper price, make a product, and then they sell it to the rest of the world. Well, what happened over here? Where people live inside the border of the United States, you become permanent unemployed. They are there even talking about there are classes of people in this society that may be born and never have a chance to get a job. That's the scenario they have created. That is the future that many of us will be looking at. And with the advancement of technology, that only replaces labor more. And all these things add up to a society of what happens when you have a group of people who many, a few feel like they have no more value that they should have as human beings. They have no more value as a human being because they can't make no more money for them. So what happens when you have a, a society where the concentration of power and wealth is in the hands of a few people and the rest of the people don't have anything? How um, does this situation bear itself out? What take place? And we can see what has begun to take place in terms of the clashes that we are having around who will be able to live in decent city, who will not, who will make policies based upon their well-being, and who will benefit from them and who will not. I mean, again, you know, again, it's all systematic and just another form of sophistication of slavery. So anyway, job well done, panelists. Let's move forward. And to our sister uh, from New Mexico, anytime you would like to chime in, just say so. The mic is open to you. Uh, let's move in. Hockey, one other point we'd like to make. And I'd like to just make this point to our listening audience and to our panelists today. This issue has multi-levels. It's a very complex issue that African people must resolve in order to unite the continent of Africa. There are no such thing as a North Africa and a Southern Africa. You know, Africans in the South and the Arabs in the North, 
this problem has to be resolved. But you did raise the question of hacking, and, and it's a very delicate question because we got to consider many factors in terms of when we raise issues and struggles, we must be conscious of all of the factors that we are that surrounds us and how they can be used and be manipulated. It's very sensitive, this question of Arab versus African. Arabs, many people run the, run the position that one of the fundamental problems on the continent of Africa is Arab exploitation and oppression. And they see these two entities as 22 separate entities and they are odds with each other. How do you view, how do the panelists view? I heard Haki's position, he can clarify it. But one of the questions I have in, that, in terms of that discussion, the African people must have, as well as those who perceive themselves as Arab. One of that is that the distinction or difference between the two. Do you see both of them were in the same group or they are totally two separate groups, Arab versus Africans? Let me, let me let respond. Let me, your let, let me go first. Let me, yes. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, here, here's the thing, objectively speaking, Brother Africa. When we talk about Arabs, we understand that Arabs is a culture. It has nothing to do in terms of ethnicity per se. And so because we understand that we understand that Arabs come in diff- many different shades, we understand that. But what happened is in terms of Arab nationalism, they're talking about a particular shade, uh, particularly from light brown to, to white, uh, is it epitomizes what it is to be Arab. And so therefore those Africans who are very dark, who are dark, who speak Arabic, who are Muslims, are not perceived as Muslims, as Arabs. And so what I'm saying is this kind of colorism that exists among the Arab community. And so you and I understand that there's no distinction between Arabs and Africans because Arabs, a lot, of them don't un- a lot of them don't understand that they're African too. They just don't understand that because they're being conditioned to believe socially, you know, that somehow uh, their, their pigmentation, their skin color, puts them one, 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 one up on the, the African, on the African Arab. Uh, so we understand that, and there's no question about that. But the thing is that we can't make Arabs understand their Africanity. If they're not willing to acknowledge their Africanity, we can't compel them to acknowledge that. You've got Africans who are very, very dark, who would never tell you that they're African and say they're Arab. In other words, that's fine. The culture is that you identify with being Arab. That's fine. It doesn't define your ethnicity. It merely defines that you as an Arab, you know, that you, 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 you relate to the teachings of Islam. That's all it means. It doesn't speak to your ethnicity, but there are those Arabs who think that Arab is actually an ethnicity, and so they see that as a separate and group, part and distinct from African from, from African people. We don't understand the fallacy of that argument. We understand that. For example, uh, Turkur. I read an article about this guy named Turkur. He's a Nigerian of the Hausa tribe, and the Hausa tribe in Nigeria. They're mostly Muslims. Now, this guy got a relationship with these enslavers in Libya. Now, for people who don't know what's happening in Libya right now. They're currently catching African immigrants, Muslim and non-Muslims, taking them, enslaving them, and selling them. Not only that, they're actually exporting body parts from these enslaved Africans in which they kill to, 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 uh, to, to sell parts to the Western world. It's estimated in local reports about a kidney will go for $262,000, a heart goes for $192,000, a liver goes for $157,000. So it's very, very profitable. Now, in this African, to occur, Okay, it's very, very dark. But he sees himself as an African. So he sees, he sees himself as an Arab. So he sees himself separate and distinct from African people, even though he himself is an African. So I'm not saying that I don't understand the, 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 the legacy in terms of colonialism, how it impacted on people. Of course. Of course. You've got Africans in America who think that they're white simply because they're light-skinned. 
So we understand the damage that has been done by colonialism. We understand that, and I'm not negating that. I understand that. And so when I raise this issue, I'm not saying it because all, all Arabs are ignorant. All Arabs are, 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 don't understand the, the objective reality in terms of the situation as to confront people of color in, in throughout the world. I'm simply saying that it's a fact of life, and it has to be confronted, which means that when you see Arab nationalism is responsible of other, other Muslims to, 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 to respond to that and to let them know that it's simply unacceptable. When you let it go on, then you, 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 you call lunch, you, 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 you endorse that kind of behavior, that kind of mindset. That kind of mindset is destructive to Africa because understand, it has potential repercussions for, for, for policy uh, when it comes to, to Africa. For instance, when we talk about global, when we talk about global, global, uh, global politics, what we're talking about, we're talking essentially about how Western nations take Africa, for, for instance, they divide Africa based upon culture, based upon history, and so forth and so on. Well, the reason why you have a North Africa versus the South Africa versus the East Africa versus West Africa versus Central Africa is because of geopolitics. It's all about figuring out ways to exploit and divide people based upon people's unique, unique history. For North Africa, which is, has a lot of Muslims in North Africa, it's easy to play up Muslim uh, 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 racism because it divides them from the rest of Africa. And when I talk about the, the repercussions of, of such, a, of such a, a, a such a mindset, then we've got to understand that those Arabs who are part of the African Union or who should be there struggling on behalf of the interests of Africa as a whole, struggle only on the interests of Arab people, then you've got a fundamental problem. And that's what I'm saying. I'm not going to run from, run away from the fact that this is a reality and that it's something that this Arab nationalism has to be, has to be addressed. No question about it. Africans who are Africans who are Arab, that's fine. Uh, Ihan Omar, that's fine. You say you say you're Arab. I say you're an African. I say you're an African who practices Islam. But if you so call yourself an Arab, that's fine with me. I have no problem with that. All I'm saying is that if that Arab mindset tells you that somehow that puts you apart and distinct from African people, then I'm saying that's something I, cur- I, I categorically uh, reject. That's my only point, Brother Africa. I'm not naive to the social conditioning yeah, or, or the, the history. Or, or the history, or the history of colonialism as impact you know people of color around the world. I'm I'm very clear on that point. I think you raise the issue historically. The slave trade routes, all of them have never been destroyed. They even continue today, which you alluded to. And people need to understand that that phenomenon. Anyone else just would like to speak to the issue, or has any like to share as relates to that issue? Yes. I uh, want to add that uh, that is a very complex issue, May, uh, partly because in addition to the points uh, uh, that uh, that Haki and you and uh, you raised, Brother Africa, you have uh, you you have di- uh, a class stratification in uh, in the so-called. Uh, uh, Arab countries as well, and you have competing uh, class interests. Most of the, uh, uh, of what's referred to as the Arab region is in a state of feudalism, particularly Saudi Arabia, especially. And so you have uh, so you have competing class interests going on as well. And in areas like Mauritania, Morocco, and uh, other uh, and other monarchies, you have uh, yeah feudalism uh, existing alongside neo-colonialism. 
so you, uh, so so the class uh, the question of uh, uh, class comes into play, as well as religious and ethnic differences. Arab is basically uh, is primarily a, uh, you know uh, you know it's a it's a language grouping more than anything else. It doesn't uh, necessarily denote ethnicity in and of itself. And uh, and uh, there are uh, let's see, and there are some Arabs that have um, you know shown solidarity with African struggles. So, uh, uh, for example, uh, uh, you know the Palestinians who are having uh, who are having their uh, 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 their own uh, struggles as far as the land question is concerned with the Zionists. So uh and uh you know and they uh, so uh, so I think we uh you know I think it's a delicate question and uh, and uh you know it's very and uh you know we have to guard against putting all uh you know uh you, you know Arabs in a, in a, you know in a particular category because they have their uh uh, their uh, class and ethnic issues, just as Africans do. Let me, so. let me, let me, let me, let me make it less intricate. Here's the thing: throughout the Arab world, dark-skinned dark Muslims and non-Muslims are referred to as Abbot. Now, one of the things that, in, in the context of Eastern, uh, so-called Middle East, one of the things is that a lot of times in Arab culture, uh, people refer to each other as Abbot because essentially what they're saying is that because you know, uh, the people at the top have all the power. We have no power. We're like slaves. So refer to each other as Abbot. So it's a little joke that takes place in the Middle East. Now, the problem comes when Abbot is applied to people of African ancestry, when people are clearly African. Now, understand that a lot of these brown-skinned, uh, these brown-skinned Muslims are also you know, African, uh, African stock. They just don't realize it. But their position is that they're, that they're not, that somehow distinct from African people. That's their position. And that's not to say that all 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 Arabs think that way. Even white, even white 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 people who I mean white Arabs people who appear to be white who are Arabs from North Africa who are very clear on their African roots who say to say you I'm an African. That's not the point. The point is that you got a culture that you got a culture in the Middle East that validate the racism. Islam as a system of belief believes that no one should be judged based upon upon color. In fact. Color becomes esoteric. It becomes so unimportant in Islam. You don't look at people color. You look at the value of what they bring to the, to the table, which is the most way to characterize what pe- who, who people are. So the mere fact that you got people who practice this, this religion who somehow still, despite the tenets of the religion, advocate racism or colorism, I'm saying that it needs to be exposed. It's anti-Islamic. That's all I'm saying. It doesn't negate the fact that people who people in the Arab world who are understanding, who understand what's going on, people in the Arab world who are proud of their African roots, people in the Arab world who understand the issues that that that, that uh, impact humanity. I'm not saying that. As a matter of fact, most most Arabs in America are in fact democratic Democrats. That's because they have some fundamental understanding of the fundamental uh, uh, contradictions or fundamental injustices inflicted upon people in society. So they understand that. And that's not what I'm saying. And that's not what I'm saying about. I'm talking specifically about, I'm talking about that mindset that exists in those, those Arabs, both in the Middle East and in America, which suggests that somehow that, uh, you know, if 
if you don't look like look like look like if you don't look like them, you're brown or white or whatever. If you don't, if your complexion is not of that color, then somehow you you're, you're not truly Muslim, or you're not truly Arab. So that's all. That's the only point that I'm making. I'm not saying anything about anybody at all. All Arabs or anything. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I articulated. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is very very clear. It has to be. It has to. It has to be. It has to be. You have to have some discourse around this issue in terms of colorism and race or bigotry that exists in the Arab world, because it does have implications for for, for Africa. Because as I said before, there are many Arabs who are part of the African Union, and if their position is that my focus is totally on Arab concerns or Arab issues, then what happens to the issues pertaining to Africans? What about neocolonialism, oppression, uh, oppression of African people? What about the, the systematic? Uh, Systematic looting of, of 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 resources of Africa. If your position is that those are not of issues, then you have no compelling interest to even engage in those kind of interests. So what I'm saying that we have to confront that. We have no choice. Just as we confront with the kind of bigotry and the kind of uh, narrow-mindedness that exists in, in in the Christian world, we don't have a problem critiquing that. We could dig it all the time about you know corrupt and uh, and, and and hateful and 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 uh, and, 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 and unchristian-like behavior. Uh, exemplified by many, many, so many Christians, we have no problem in terms of talking about that kind of hypocrisy. Well, Muslims are not exempt from 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 examination in terms of you know the same kind of hypocrisy. So that's the only point that I'm making, and I and I simply close with that. All right, brother Hacker, your point is well taken. Again, we just want to share information with our listening audience, and you can share back with us. You can write us. Give up your views, your comments based upon what have we discussed and the issues we are taking upon and what you think about it. And you can email us at AfricaOnTheMove2 at Gmail. We would love to hear your, your, your thoughts. And also, if you have special issues that you would like to address, we invite you to come on as a guest. Write us at AfricaOnTheMove2 at Gmail.com. What we're going to do right now, we're going to take one more question from the segment what's going on in our world and community, and then we're going to make a transition to our theme for the night, which is 5-3, Forces in Motion, but where is it going? Brother Anthony, you may you alluded to one of the points in your opening statement of what's going on in your world community to talk about the nature of the vote. Some people may see the vote as be all in all, and I would just like to have a little bit of discussion on the, the fallacy or the error if we look at Solution to our problem is vote is based on voting. Uh, panelists, do we have anybody on it dealing with the premise that the voting is the be all in all? That's ultimately where we need to go. Okay, so since so we don't have it, let's talk a little bit about the danger of looking at the voting as the be all in all. Anyone would like to start at all? I'll start at all because. One of the problems with voting in the context of the history and the reality of the United States is that if you comply with the principle, one man, one vote, and you live in a society where you are heavily disproportionate in terms of numbers, you are a small, quote-unquote, minority group, in and of itself creates the great possibility that you never will achieve the kind of things that you are desired. That's number one. Number two, we have seen that even when you try to leverage your vote and put representatives, when they call this concept of 
uh, representation, democracy representation, and we choose so-called representatives, we have seen how the system is structured is that your vote comes up against money, and money has proven to dominate and rule. So you can vote a person in, but if you don't have the money to influence, persuade his way of thinking and his interests, then many times your vote interest is not um, a knowledge. We also can see that fundamentally when you're talking about the relationship between politics and economic, ultimately it's the economic aspects runs that dictates the policy or the politics which really is backwards. This is why I raise the issue that we got to be very careful and not be deceiving that any political party and ultimate solution to our people's problem will be resolved to the vote. I'll stop there and I'd like to hear other folks weigh in on this phenomenon. Um, I would like, I would add <clears throat> to your points, Brother Africa, that... <clears throat> That uh, uh, something that uh, Brother Kwame Ture pointed out many years ago, that Africans often, uh, 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 you know, go into organizations, fronts or coalitions without first being organized. And we've made that mistake uh, repeatedly over the uh, over the uh, over the nearly 150 years since uh, we've. Uh, since uh, we, we put an end to chattel slavery, that we that 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 we don't have our own independent political organization to hold our leadership accountable for the actions they take, and so uh, so we all so we're often uh, in a dilemma where we elect leadership that doesn't act their interests. Uh, a couple of cases come uh, uh, come to mind. It's the case of uh, you know uh, uh, Barack Obama, and uh, that's the highest elected position available inside the U.S. Yet half of him did not do anything, did uh, did uh, hardly anything to advance the interests of the masses of African people. If anything, they got worse under uh, his administration, ironically. A lot of people have a hard time seeing that, and there are a lot of people that are uh, uh, that uh, that confuse disability with power. And we've got to make that distinction. Just because you're in a visible position does not necessarily mean you have power. As a matter of fact, it could be uh, uh, very often, in our case, we don't have any power at all. We probably have more elected officials in, in, than any other ethnic group inside the U.S. Yet, uh, yet we still, uh, uh, you know, severely oppressed, persecuted, but because of our ethnicity, and uh, and, and 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 lack access to the. Uh, to the same opportunities that other ethnic groups have inside uh, of the U.S. So uh, that uh, you know, so that the uh, you know uh, being organized is uh, critically important, along with voting, 
But a lot of uh, get-out-the-vote campaigns just put emphasis on voting, but they don't put enough emphasis on being organized to hold the leadership that that people select accountable for their actions while they're in office. Yeah, I think, Brother yeah. Anthony, you can, I can think one quick question, Brother Lackey. I think, Anthony, you need to speak to the issue of the contradiction of not being organized. We have continued to be mobilized, the limitation and the error of just being mobilized. Can you speak to that real quickly, Anthony? Sure. But that's a part of yeah, the aspect sure, sure, yeah. to. Um, yeah, see, uh, yeah, uh, see, the, 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 uh, uh, let's see, mobilization only lasts for so long. You get limited gains, but you can't sustain them over the long term. Permanent organization, you can actually sustain uh, your struggle over, over a longer period of time, even when the, uh, the media attention goes away. Uh, because you're organized around certain principles or concepts that uh, uh, you, uh, you know that are important for sustaining society over the long term. So, uh, so uh, it is critically important that Africans belong to a political organization in order in order to gain our liberation. Brother Haki? Yeah. Uh, well, here's the thing about Africa, uh, and you're absolutely correct. Um, you know, one of the problems that, you know, once, they, once the Supreme Court uh, validated the uh, Citizens United, uh, uh, it would state that, uh, you know, money defines uh, your ability to speak, and as such, that money uh, can be used to, to penetrate and influence the political system then the gates were wide open. And so, therefore, it's all about the money. And so the problem in terms of representative democracy is that one of the things is that when you elect these people to go to, to, to Congress with the expectation they're going to serve their interests, we've got to be very, very clear that the way the system is set up is not set up to ensure that they can even fight for the interests of the masses of people. What it is, what happens is that those people get in positions of power and they're essentially corrupted in which they are confronted by lobbies with, with lots and lots of cash, corporate types with lots and lots of cash, to give to them in return, they vote the way the corporations want them to vote. And so, therefore, this, so when we talk about representative democracy, we have very, very clear that none of them go there to really represent you know, the interests of the people. I mean, there are exceptions. Historically, there have been exceptions, and I think certainly one of the exceptions, I think, uh, AOC, I think uh, in the in the um, in the um, the other sisters who are part of who are part of that part of that the quad, they um, they do a very good job in terms of articulating the needs of the, the masses of masses of folks, but to, to the extent that they can be sustained is, is questionable. I, I'm hoping I'm hoping that AOC will, will stay the course because you know uh, when it comes to co-opting people, it's a very very gradual process. And so I'm going to wait and see, you know, assume that the sister is reelected, and see what kind of policies she had, she endorsed, what kind of uh, what kind of policies that uh, she uh, she pushes. So I'll wait and see. As a lot as where what kind of policies the, the the remaining members of the quad are going to push, what are they going to do in terms of you know uh, uh, the quality of the kind of uh, policy that they're pursuing. So I'll wait and see what happens. Now this whole question in terms of you know one man one vote brother Africa you know uh, you know we we both understand there's no such thing as one man one vote it never has been and the reason is very very simple 
you can't have electoral college determining you know determining uh, the outcome of elections and then talk about one man one vote. In fact, what the electoral college do is actually nullifies votes. So you have a situation where a large state, let's say like California, uh, you know, depending on uh, their representatives who represent the electoral college, depending on how they vote, depends on who wins the election, irrespective of how many people or the popular vote or the number of people actually vote for the candidate. So this notion in terms of one man, one vote, particularly when we talk about the, uh, the presidency of the United States, we're going to say it's just a joke. It's just a joke. And then the, the power in terms of electing the president resides with those people in positions of power. It always has been. This is why they refuse to, to, to abolish the electoral college. They understand that. So this one, one, man, one, man, one man, one vote sounds good. It encourages people to vote. But the reality is that uh, their, their needs and aspirations could never be articulated you know, by the representative vote because of the kind of corruption that's inherent in, in, in Washington politics and also because of the electoral college that, in fact, negates their vote uh, simply because it doesn't take into consideration who's actually voting for who. So clearly, Brother Africa, you're absolutely correct. Um, you know, uh, this, is, this, is, this is all a sham. And for anybody who thinks that voting is a panacea, then they, they need to rethink it because clearly the system is corrupt from the top to the bottom, and, and, and nothing short of destruction is, is, going, to, is going to bring about a, a new day. And that's just the cold reality of it all. And I'll close with that. I'd like to jump in here. Yes, go ahead, Brother Moses. Okay. Um, Let me say, first of all, that ever since I've been eligible to vote, I've been voting. So I've been voting for years. I'm 69 now. Um, Nevertheless, what you're saying is true. Voting is not the be-all, end-all. You know, we have a strategy of of, uh, a vision, hopefully a dream or a vision, at least a vision of what society should look like and – how it should be organized, and um, what needs to be done. And, uh, and according, to that, according to that, the strategy and tactics must be used to perpetuate and progress towards that end. Um, and um, so voting is just a, a tactic to um, use in a strategic objective. Um, certainly the sister AOC and the squad and uh, even the, the sister out in Seattle they're speaking up, talking revolution. And that's what we need. We need people who are not afraid to talk about qualitative change. Quantitative changes lead to qualitative changes. Nothing happens overnight. And so, you know, it's incremental changes that, that lead to the qualitative changes. But we need people who are speaking out, who are saying just what the system is, what the system can do, what the system can't do, and speaking truth to power at all times so that, so that the people can learn and see through the experiences, what 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 can be done? That's why Barack Obama was so important. We had to show in in concrete deeds that blackness, black skin color, was not just the, the be all end all answer to our problems. And the, and the only way we do that was to go through things. You can't go around things. You got to go through some things. And so you know, um, the the question is the objective. What is the Vision. What what will society look like? What what is it a representative government? And how will it, how who how will you get those representatives? Uh, all that's part of the uh, the Dallas and historical materialism approach to to uh, change. Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's okay. a very interesting. That's a, that's a very. Can I respond? Yeah, go ahead. That's a, that's a that's a very interesting analogy, uh, analogy uh, brother, 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 uh, brother, brother Moses. And on some point, I agree with you. But I would say this: 
One of the problems in terms of one man, one vote, uh, you know, and when you, when you talk about, uh, you know, in terms of the, the necessity in terms of the process and going through this process in terms of bringing clarity to people who maybe not understand that, in fact, the system is corrupt. And the way we demonstrate to people that the system is corrupt, we keep, in, we keep voting for these leaders in positions of power. And, uh, and, and just to show that when they get in positions of power, their power is actually doing things. The problem is that we've been talking about this for a long time, Brother Africa. We, I mean, brother, brother, brother Moses. We ain't just started talking about in terms of getting people in positions of power. The old thinking was always that if we get people in positions of power, they can fundamentally change things. Well, one of the things Brother Anthony alluded to earlier was the fact that we have more, or I think Brother Africa alluded to, we have more representatives in, 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 in the political world than any ethnic group in America, but yet we're the most populous people in the whole country. The question is why? Well, clearly, uh, you know, this notion that we put too much stock in terms of, you know, you know, getting these representatives, you know, in positions of power, thinking that, in fact, they somehow can change things. And I think you're right. I think that by having Barack Obama in positions of power, it illustrates, you know, just how powerless, it is, how powerless our people are in the context of a system which is directly opposed to the interests of African people. And so by having him in positions of the most powerful uh, job in the, in the country, it proves to people that, Voting simply is not the solution. So we got Barack Obama, and then what happens? Nothing. Because what happens is that, you know, he essentially acquiesced to the system. He had to do what the system wanted him to do, because if he didn't do what the system wanted him to do, he understood, and he said that himself, that if he didn't play ball, if he didn't acquiesce to precisely what the system wants him to do, they would kill him. He said that. He said that. And he's absolutely correct. If he were actually trying to change the system, the last president in the United States who actually tried to change the system, who tried to implement democracy, was John F. Kennedy. They killed him. So, so Barack Obama was absolutely correct. He understood that if he actually tried to implement change, they would kill him. There's no way he could run. They would kill him because they're all around him. He knew that. And so, therefore, if he, his position is that if I actually try to implement change, they're going to kill me, then what reason, how what, what reasonably can we expect people to be elected in positions of authority do we really expect them to actually fight for the interests of the people, unless they're willing to give their life? I don't think so. Now we're not we're not we're not we're not voting revolutionaries. We're voting politicians. Politicians by nature are not going to buck the system. That's just the nature of the beast. So, we, so when we have this uh, Citizens United uh, um, policy in place, law in place, which validates money in politics, then politicians have the the most opportune uh, 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 situation where they can make tons and tons of money, all they have to do is play ball. So, 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 so to think that somehow that strategically we can demonstrate, you know, the uselessness or the fertility of sending people to, into positions of power uh, can be a real use to our people, I think at this point, I think this is what most people already know, that these people that you sit to, sit to, uh, sit to Congress are essentially powerless. They're not there in terms of certain interests of people. They're there to see what, what kind of money they can get, what kind of contacts they can make. It's very, very simple. And so, therefore, where at one time we really believed that, in fact, that we could demonstrate to people, you know, uh, concretely, you know, by having people in positions of power and pointing out, see, they're in power, but they're powerless to do anything about our situation. We thought that would be a benefit to us. At this point in the ball game, we've got to be very, very clear on that. If we're talking about real empowerment, it's not going to come from some representative going to Congress. It's going to come from people actually doing the work right in the community. If the people in the community don't work together to create that change in which they want, then it's not going to happen. It's very, very simple. 
So I'll send proposals that I'll be going on for the next half an hour. So anyway, I'll call that. Let me let me jump back in here now. Uh, you're saying basically get organized. Basically, I agree with that. I think we need organization, no question about it. But once we're organized, then what? How will change take place? In Cuba, they have elections. I think in China, they have elections. Um, um, what? What? How will this change take place? I mean, just leadership will develop in the community, and then what? Yeah, that, but uh, well, then well, see what we what we lack is our own independent political organization, and uh, and uh, we have uh, uh, history would tell us that that uh, that the capitalist parties do not represent or work in our interests. And, uh, and, and the, the reason why most people probably don't understand that is because, uh, let's see, we have not done an adequate job of teaching the youth especially our history. And, uh, I mean, uh, and, and the thing about it, though, we've been trying, uh, you know, for, uh, for nearly a century and a half to do it through the existing duopoly. It doesn't work. So what, but what we haven't done is we haven't organized ourselves uh, to define what it is, what our interests are, what we want and to work with those forces that are moving in the same direction. I mean, we go up into other organizations, like the Populist Party, like the Communist Party, for example. But the thing about it, though, but, but, but because we are not organized first as a people, then we could get pushed around or run out of those organizations, which is what happened with the Populist Party. Uh, in, in the uh, late 19th century, we were ran out, and uh, and uh, so, and uh, and because we have not, uh, uh, some of us try to forget our past rather than pass it on to our children. We we, we repeat errors, and the error we keep repeating is uh, our continual support of the Republican Democratic Party. Yeah, so by I, adequately creating an organization, real quickly, Brother Africa, by creating an organization in the community, we educate our people. It's important because one of the problems is that the people that we elect are not necessarily conscious in terms of what's really going on in the world. But if you have an organization in place in which people grew up to be conscious, then they automatically gravitate towards candidates who will serve their interests, who are willing to fight for their interests. One of the things that Mary Robinson of, 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 um, of Ireland talked about when she was head of the UN Commission on the, on the, on the justice, uh, something to that extent, she says she's there to do a job, not keep a job. In other words, she realized that she's going to re- she's going to piss off a lot of powerful people in the Western world when she started talking about things like racism, injustice, uh, systematic oppression. When she started talking about those kind of things, she realized, you know, she's going to catch hell for that, and she did. But she was consistent. She was very she was very clear on what she wanted. Her consciousness was that, listen, in order for the world to be a better place, then I have to confront these systematic abuses, and she did that. So we need candidates who we elect positions to go to, to Congress to represent us. We know that they're, not, they're, they're incorruptible. They're not, going to say, they're not going to say, okay, well, you gave me $100,000 under the table, so therefore I'm going to do what you want to do. 
They said, no, no, I don't want your money. My principle, I have principles. My responsibility is to my people, and that's what I'm going to do. That's why the real change starts at the, at, at the community level and not in terms of sending people to Washington, D.C., because that stands now. Most of our people are simply most of our people simply don't understand the complexities of the society, or the corruption that exists in the minds of so many of our people makes us uh, ineffective in terms of being able to actually advocate for African people, you know, on a national or, 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 or state level. So clearly, brother, Af- I mean, brother, brother Moses, it has to take place on the community level and not so much focused on in terms of sending people to Washington D.C. because we send them to Washington D.C. and we get more of the same. And by definition, you, not, you and I understand. Doing the thing, same thing over and over again, by definition, is insanity. All right, panelists and our special guests, we're going to take a revolutionary cultural break right now. When we come back, we're going to start addressing our theme tonight, part three, forces in motion. But where is it going? You're listening to Africa on the Moon. Living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by a noose, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know I must be. Strong to last through my journey, yeah. To last through my journey, yeah. Time will arrive when we must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. We must prepare and learn how to care for soon. There where our lives won't be in danger And when the light is clear Oh, how beautiful I will be To know that I've been here And made it through my journey Yeah, and made it through my journey Pellerino, a bloodline across the waters from Benin to Salvador Bahia, a scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries and see the blood in the red clay, the clay that holds stones together is African, and each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out from the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces 
crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pellerinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. Light is clear. Oh, how beautiful I will be to know that I've been here and made it through my journey. Yeah, and made it through my journey. Yeah, 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 yeah.
to Pellerino and Right Time, Mighty Diamonds. We welcome you back. We will continue to discourse as we move into our theme tonight, Part 3, Forces in Motion, but where is it going? We have some interesting articles we have selected for this week to try to discuss and share with you, hoping that we can learn something from it. One of the first articles is titled, Far-Right Agreements Are Hoping to Turn the George Floyd Protests into a New Civil War. And the subtitle, Armed Agreements Are Showing Up to Protest and Urging a Boogaloo Code for a Civil War Online. Now, in this article, it's a very interesting article. It talks about the various forces who have their own set of agendas on why they are participating and is in opposition to U.S. government. Panelists, one of the major questions I'd like to hear from y'all discuss from this is, looking at the various forces that are participating in these mass marches, and we also know that these marches are not just located internally inside the United States, but they are being coordinated and are being sponsored all over the world, which means our forces were serious money that is running the screens behind everything. I'd like to, for y'all to just raise some, some of the issues and concerns that y'all have as relates to the forces that are participating in these uh, rallies, these protests, and what the long-term implications that they may have in terms of the future direction or where we ultimately may end up at. I'll start with you, Brother Anthony. What's your thoughts on this whole question of far-right agreements, participation, and how they may have an impact ultimately in terms of what will be the final results from these mass protest rallies in opposition to the U.S. police forces and their oppression against against the people inside the United States, particularly the African population. Right. Um, there are very there are several forces involved in these uh, rebellions and demonstrations against pro, pro, pro police brutality in in, in the U.S. And uh, and uh, I think uh, uh, Africans have to be very cautious and cognizant of these very various political forces. Most of them do not necessarily represent our interests, but represent other people's agendas. Uh, Black Lives Matter, for example, is. Uh, Funded by civil societies financed by George Soros, uh, a, 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 a billionaire who's uh, who's working to uh, uh, to try to you know stabilize the uh, the uh, the government in Venezuela, for example, and who has also been uh, instrumental in stabilizing. In destabilizing or or having overthrown socialist governments uh, in various parts of the world, and I think including Hungary and uh, some other places I don't recall offhand right now. And then you have uh, you know uh, uh, you know opportunists that are taking advantage of the upheaval 
for example, the 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 this group that this article mentions, the Boogaloo Boys, who are uh you you know who are trying to provoke uh you know uh you know situations that would trigger a so called race war inside uh you know inside the US. And um and this is a dangerous situation because uh we're not sufficiently organized among ourselves to, to defend ourselves against uh any sort of uh you know violent attack. And uh that's and that's one of the key reasons why we continue to be victims of uh police repression, uh, because of our lack of organization and also and also as a means of instilling fear in in us against uh you know uh you know rising against our oppression. So I think we have to, you know, uh you know uh you know be cautious about the uh the actions we take and the movements that we get involved with. Brother Haki? Yeah. I think there are there are other um, entities uh, responsible for what's going on. One of the things I'm 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 thinking is that when we look at the terms of the explosion of these movements, uh, um, you know, around around the world, and the speed in which they've been accomplished, normally that's affiliated with color revolutions. In other words, America does a very good job in terms of going around the world and facilitating you know all kinds of um, uh, demonstrations. Uh, and it, they, they've done it behind it. It's done behind the scene. So I'm thinking that when you give, when you think about the kind of economic disparities and the economic uh, problems people are confronted with, and you look at this kind of economic uncertainties, to actually get a lot of them where people to come out and and not to be concerned when, in terms of their 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 particular problems in terms of economics, but rather to be particularly concerned about the suffering, the racial oppression of, of African people. And I'm thinking that something is amiss here. Something else, is, something else is going on here. But one of the things I'm very, very clear on is that one of the things is that by by stimulating these demonstrations, you create a tremendous amount of um, uh, anxiety among white people throughout the globe. I think it's that stimulation of that anxiety, which is is, is preferable uh, in terms of uh, people people in positions of power want that kind of anxiety to exist in the minds of white folks, which makes them much more vulnerable to manipulation in the future. Because I think if they can create a scenario which says, or create at least a narrative which says that these people potentially, these people of color potentially could take over, or that they represent a fundamental directory way of life, then it works in the interest of the people in positions of power to at some point or later point to manipulate them, to get them on the street for the sole purpose in terms of eliminating that threat or eliminating those people, those people of color, uh, uh, um, uh, under the guise that they are a threat to society at large or a threat to their racial identity. So I'm very, very cautious in terms of this kind of movement taking place. In the context of America, one of the things is very, very clear. When we talk about the infiltration of the white racists, uh, it's very, very clear that their, their motive is, is, is all about, I suspect, their motives is all about in terms of facilitating as much chaos as they possibly can, encourage, uh, create conditions in which um, uh, the police find it necessary uh, to shoot people. In the process, where they shoot enough people and enrage enough African people in society, where African people get to a point where they start shooting back. And so then you have this kind of massive chaos, 
which then which which means that the the same racists could then therefore say, listen, the police are under attack. We got to assist our police, which would which would make it possible for other white folks who who are so anxious about what's going on to join in that that struggle in terms of putting down those who they perceive as a threat to the society, who who constitute a fundamental threat to law enforcement. So I think there's a lot of strategizing going on. I think we'll be very, very careful about, you know, what's going on. I'm not saying that people shouldn't express their indignation. They should ex- express their indignation. But the same token, we have to have that organization. Because the bottom line is that if what I'm thinking is correct, and that's strategically what they're doing, then the kind of kind of brutality that's coming, that's coming our way is much more massive. It's much more organized. And we must be organized if we have a potential chance in terms of prevailing against, you know, such awesome odds. So I think that you're absolutely correct. I think fundamentally this is, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of people behind this, and this is not simply a people's response to injustice inflicted upon African people, but rather a um, strategy by people in positions of power to manipulate the masses of folks so at a later point they can use them to carry out uh, whatever it is that they want them to carry out. Yeah, and I would like to interject for a second before I come to you, Brother Moses. And my sister, um, emphasize the point you just raised, Haki. I think this is a, a, a teachable moment, and we need to raise that level of consciousness just based on our history of spontaneity. Again, we're acting out of spontaneity, and that was one of the lessons that Brother Kwame Ture taught us in terms of, you know, we're acting from a stimulus from the outside. The stimulus is police brutality. We are reacting to an outside force. And he raised the issue that historically, if you are not driven internally, it must come from inside. And if you are not organized, what we would do and what we have done is we raise up in rebellion for a short period of time and then go back and sit down. And what that does is allow the enemy to reorganize, and particularly the police force. They will reorganize, and when they come back again, they'll be more brutal, brutal than what they were before. And I got a feeling that we are going down the same path again. And you said it, Brother Hackery, I think that we have a greater price to be paid if we allow this to happen again based upon our history. So to our listening audience and to our organizations, to our political organizers, we need to maybe be planned for and to safeguard how do we resist and defend ourselves once I would say the election is over with. I think a lot of this is tied into the election, the drove into the election. But once the election is over with, we may see the same phenomenon, phenomenon that has always happened, where you'll see the reactionary forces come back and it will be more brutal against you. Brother Moses, uh, to our guest. No, I'd like to hear from the sister from Mexico, New Mexico. Okay, to my sister, if you have anything you'd like to say, the mic is yours. Anything you'd like to say, the mic is yours. Um, thank you, brother. I was, um, I don't know, the thought this has just come back to me over and over again throughout the conversation and dialogue that uh, we just can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. We can't say that everything has been a failure and therefore we need to organize and forget the past and not be able to build upon that. I think we need to be more able to multitask. While we do need to organize, we do need to educate. And and by doing those two things and all, we'll start to build up a basis that maybe perhaps we can add to those things that have challenged us in the past and and correct those things that have not worked. But we cannot say that it was all a failure. Otherwise, we would be looking uh, back uh, 
even though we are dealing with slavery, and that's an economic thing, and I wanted to say something on that, but the, the conversation went another direction. We have got to educate our people to understand where they won't be taxi to those things that are just basic, and that is to help them to facilitate those basic needs that they have. Secondarily, I agree with you. We send people up um, to represent us, uh, and um, they don't do what they're supposed to do. They they lie. They cheat. Um, uh, they're human beings. Uh, we, I, I believe in we the people. I believe in a vision. I believe in a purpose. I believe that even though we went against uh, um, uh, the worst of conditions, um, up to Jim Crow. At least we got to Jim Crow. I don't I don't deny the the marches and the speeches and the education that we got because that's what put me in the place that I am. So I just can't throw the baby out with the bathwater and say we gotta organize. Because while we are organizing and talking about it, we got the um our black men that are being killed by the day as we organize. And as our people are still uneducated as to why they're even out there um, marching, uh, and, and, and what is the vision? What is the goal? What is the objective? And how do we get there? And I believe that there's a solution. I don't, I don't believe that we just say, oh, the whole system, just throw it away. We need to vote. That's all we have. And then we need to organize. So can't we do the two at the same time and quit wasting time as our people continue to die and and, and we become even more, more of a slave in that we don't even have the, the funds and the monies in order to ensure that even the food that we are able to buy is of a quality that would even give us life. So I, I, what I say is don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We've got to vote. We work to get to that. Now we need to move forward. And continue on, but it's got to be more than a dialogue. How do we organize? How do we educate? And if we begin at home, but we have generations that we've lost out that we didn't educate. They're totally ignorant of their background. They don't know where they're going to because they don't know where they came from. So that's what I have to say, brother. Well, I see it, Pamela. Your response? Yeah. Well, sister, uh, I. Uh, she's absolutely correct. Uh, you don't throw the baby out the bathwater, uh, to use her term. Um, you know, I, I, I think we're saying the same thing. Uh, we, we, we're talking, essentially what we're talking about, we're talking about processes. Uh, you know, so when we talk about the points in terms of community organization, we're not negating that there will continue to be Africans who will continue to vote. And no one say no one will say uh, don't vote. But what we will say is that we want you to understand in voting is not a panacea. And so therefore, to understand it's not a panacea, then the question in terms of community organization becomes extremely paramount. And so that's the only point that we're making. So essentially we're saying the same thing. So we're not advocating, you know, to dismiss uh, the uh, demonstrations that are taking place. In fact, it takes a great deal of fortitude to stand up uh, against police violence and express your indignation in terms of the kind of injustice inflicted upon African people. So that should be that should be respected, and and we do. And so uh, mm-hmm. essentially, what we're saying is the same thing. It's just it's a question in terms of process, and I think that's where uh, the, the we we diverge in terms of our understanding of, of the struggle. Right. Anyone else um, like to respond? Yeah, I would. Um, uh, voting. Uh, I, I'm not uh, dismissing the importance of the vote. Uh, 
uh, voting is a means to an end, but it should not be seen as an end of itself. Uh, once you uh, actually, if you look at the uh, the way political power is wielded, voting is the minimum that an individual can do. Not the most, but the minimum. And actually, uh, and actually, the other things that have to be done once the vote is cast, once that's done after election day. Uh, the people that, uh, that, that, uh, that, that are voted into power, they have to be held accountable for the actions that they take. Most of the time, the people that have the ability to wield economic and or political influence are the ones who the, uh, the political leaders listen to. That's where organization comes into play. Right now, in our current state, uh, Africans do not have any uh, any economic or political power. We're powerless. That's why we're not respected inside the Democratic Party, even though we've been its most loyal constituency for nearly uh, 90 years. And uh, so we have to organize... Uh, in order, in order to leverage what what what, uh, what little uh, you know political uh, you know clout we do have, because we don't have economic economic power in the society, and that's because we don't control anything that's needed by the population. We don't control any of that. We do participate in that, but we don't have any control. So that's where organization becomes critical. Okay, panelists, what we're going to do right now, uh, we're coming to the end of time for this program. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, you're going to have each one of y'all just give your final thoughts for tonight. We'll be right back. You're listening to Africa on the Move. If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth, take a stand for justice, 
That's what we've got to do, cause Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. People of all countries, of every race, and creed we need a new beginning let us plant the seed plant the seed of love and let that love seed grow plant the seed for everyone so all the world will know that Palestine Palestine needs her freedom Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom, needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the moon. At this point in time, we're going to ask our political panelists, analysts, and our participants today. Just get our final thoughts on today's program, and we'll start off first and foremost to our special guest from New Mexico, to our dear sister, the Mike Jones. Thank you, my brother. I just want to uh, say thank you and, and send peace to all my brothers and encourage them to keep on with the fight. Um, I enjoyed the dialogue this evening, and I'm just looking for us to begin some grassroots um, uh, projects that will help address individually to begin to change the minds of our young people to have them understand that they're just a part of the ladder that we've been climbing and that they have to continue to uh, to excel and to uh, place a standard, a better standard for themselves to fight, um, to be free. And um, education is an absolute, um, educating oneself about not being a uh, consumer, educating oneself not to be taken by just rhetoric and, and just talked about with every wind and doctrine to uh, give them a, a true identity of who they are and the great people that they have come from and the tremendous, tremendous uh, 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 objects that, uh, that we have come against and, and been able to overcome. Yes, this is a mountain that we must climb, and we don't have all the answers, but I say before we go down, that I'd rather sidestep and move up than never turn around and go back. So I encourage you all. Peace, my brother. All right, sister, your points are well taken. Well, I'll say you. Thank you. Next we go to next we go to brother 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 Moses. Your thoughts for the night. Okay, I thank you. Thank you. It's been wonderful, though, as usual. Um, I think you know, like the. 
microcosm of the macrocosm is in terms of the state and government, the microcosm would be the family and the family structure. Uh, that's why I encourage all the young people to uh, honor your mother and father by getting married before having a baby. It is possible to have socialism in one country, and it's possible to have a, a, a marriage and a liberated uh, family. Um, I don't know. It's, 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 it seems simple, but, it, but these simple things which lead to the overall picture. And Palestine is struggling for land, for their own land. And, uh, and uh, you know, we support the liberation of Palestine, and certainly we, we oppose Zionism in all its forms. And I'll leave it like that. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses, for your contribution to today's program. Next we go to Brother Haki. Yeah, first let me just thank the sister for her contribution to the program. It's always delightful to hear what progressive sisters have to say because the reality is that you know, without progressive sisters, revolutionary sisters, the reality is that our people can't make it. Uh, we need their voices. We need their participation. So, you know, um, much uh, love and respect for the sister in terms of her contribution to this program tonight. Uh, you know, uh, a sociologist, Zabmut Bauman, he wrote, quote, Concentration camps are useful when certain humans are declared redundant or forced into a superfluous condition, uh, end quote. Obviously, when we start talking about the, the economic policies of the country, where systematically increasing amounts of money are given to 1% of the population, it fundamentally means that you, you mean that exponentially there are increasing number of people who don't have access to capital. Uh, they're, in fact, being impoverished. And, of course, the question is about the African, and you alluded to this earlier, is what do you do with all of these people in which you have no use for? In the context of the capitalist system, it's all about profitability. It's all about making money. Well, people who are unemployed, people who are not need for employment, are useless in, as far as the capitalists are concerned. The question becomes, what are we going to do with, do with them? Uh, there's been some discussion around universal basic income. Uh, of course, the far right in the political spectrum has been adamantly opposed to universal basic income. The other position is very, very clear. It is better that we, in turn, that we incarcerate large number of people, uh, the malcontents that exist in society, as opposed to fundamental economic redress that is so desperately needed in the society. I say that to say that for African people, the situation is perilous, and I'm in, I employ strongly that we build those institutions. We have to. And as the sister alluded to, we have to reach our young people. We have to find ways in which to reach our young people. And one of the things I'm a big uh, believer in is is creating a um, uh, musical program for young people learning how to play instruments. Because I think in terms of just their con conceptual understanding of the world, music does a very good job in terms of getting children to understand the conceptual nature of information, the conceptual nature of knowledge. So that's one of the things I'm a strong advocate of. But having said that, Brother Africa, I conclude with saying, of course, I encourage people to unravel the matrix, because without unraveling that matrix, there's no way conceivable to understand the hardships that are coming our way. So we have to have those organizations, and I encourage people to build those organizations. And everyone, have a good night. Thank you, Brother Haki. And Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for tonight. Yes. I would like to thank our uh, special guest, uh, the sister out of uh, New Mexico, for her participation and uh, her contribution to uh, tonight's discussion. I would encourage, uh, you know, all, all all our people to join 
an organization that is working for our people's liberation, um, in particular the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, uh, which you can learn more about by visiting our website, www.a-aprp-gc.org, or calling us at 202-246-4896. And, uh, and I encourage people to learn more about our history and join an organization uh, so that we can obtain our freedom. Thanks. And we thank you as well, Brother Anthony, for your participation. On today's program, our listening audience, our special guests, and all our panelists and analysts. I would just like to share one quick note, and that note is that for any African who is interested in building a bridge to unite our people, we would like to invite you to get to know more about and become a supporter and, and join a support group on behalf of the African Awareness Association. That organization seeks to, one, educate our people about their historical um, contributions and their connection to the world of humanity. More importantly, we want to introduce yourself to our brothers and sisters around the world. If you're interested, we encourage you to contact the African Wellness Association at this email. It's the African Wellness Association 2 at gmail.com. Or you can visit our website at www.aaa-cubatools.com. So on that note, we encourage you and give you an opportunity at least to take a look at at least two organizations that have expressed themselves tonight on this program. That's the All African Peoples, Revolutionary Party GC, and African Awareness Association. And on that note, we just like to remind you that remember, organization is the weapon of the press. Join the organization that is doing something for your people, that is doing something to help advance humanity, that is doing something to working closer to the final destination of freedom and liberation for all men and women. This program is a weekly program. You can hear us from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, U.S. We invite you to join in every Sunday, share with your friends, and let's continue to subscribe to go forward our backwards level, and we must remember, not yet Yuhuru. We are not yet free, nor not yet liberated. We'll see you next week.
What if mine had Twitter and all that civil rights talk, man, I wouldn't want to hear it. This integration been disintegrating. Better off in our own ghettos with our own situation. His last speech got him assassinated. Black business was booming. We wasn't just a consumer. Controlling our narrative. We have more marriages. And see what the damage did. They ain't that bad a bitch. And welfare did us way worse than the slavery. I'll never be an agent. I don't care what they pay me. Seem like Nip had the same old story. If we pay a black hater, tell a different allegory. Like Pearl Harbor and 9-11 was a mystery. Supremacy will go the extent to keep their history alive. All I'm saying, if these leaders was alive, who be on the internet trying to divide? And use a hotel hustler, trying to be a people of that low vibe structure. Agree to disagree, and we ain't got to tear our own down. Argue or silence will forever be our own downfall. All I want to say is that we're giving it away. Soul ain't for sale, and the devil is a fake. Argue with the silence, but don't let it seal our fate. And Africans must come from the bottom up, from the masses of people up. It is here then that we've come to see the real aspect of Pan-Africanism. We said that in the Fifth Pan-African Congress, they called for mass organizations, and immediately mass organizations sprang up throughout the length and breadth of the African world. The Conventional People's Party, a mass party, sprang up in Ghana. The Democratic Party of Guinea, a mass party, sprang up in Guinea. Throughout the length and breadth of Africa, you had the TANU, the Tanzanian African National Union, which is now the CCM, my 
Swahili is uh, not as good as yours. Uh, Chimpa, Chimpuraza, Maguri. That's very good. Oh, <laughs> my, my Swahili is bad. <laughs> Thank you. Exactly, exactly. And uh, that's their new party. But all over Africa, mass parties sprung up. If you look at the Caribbean, mass parties sprung up. And if you look at the United States, mass movements sprang up. So the call was heeded for mass confrontation. Of course, the Fifth Pan-African Congress made two definite and precise resolutions which I want to uh, highlight. Of course, Pan-Africanism from the very beginning was anti-colonial. From the very beginning it was anti-colonial. It was weak. So when they came, they didn't say to the Queen, we're going to put you out of the country. They said, you must treat the natives right. You must educate them. You must prepare them for self-government. These are things that are weak, but they were anti-colonial in essence. We must not look at the form. And we got stronger, the more this anti-colonialism will express itself. Now, anti-colonialism is nothing but anti-capitalism. Because colonialism is nothing but an offshoot, an aspect of capitalism. Therefore, if you're anti-colonial, you must be anti-capitalist, if you're logical in your thinking, of course, and your actions. Some people are not, but we are speaking of logical people here. <laughs> if you're anti-capitalist, then you must be socialist. Capitalism cannot unite Africa. Africa has to be united by socialism. Now, there's a lot of confusion here on this question of capitalism and socialism. Just recently, a young man said to me, but socialism died. I said, it did. He said, you didn't hear about it. I said, I missed the funeral. <laughs> of course, he spoke about the betrayals that occurred in the East. You must not let capitalism confuse your thinking. This is a struggle which Pan-Africanism takes on. We struggle against imperialism in the illogical arena because many people think that capitalism just wants to exploit your labor. It wants to confuse your thinking and make you think just like them. And this is where the real fight occurs. So therefore, this struggle of confusing the thinking, I told the man, I said, you're talking nonsense. Socialism cannot uh, uh, disappear. It cannot die. He said, yes, it can. I said, no. He said, how do you say that? I said, well, you are judging uh, socialism by socialists. You don't do that. He said, I've never heard such nonsense. If you don't judge socialism by socialists, what do you judge it by? I say, you judge it by its principles. Every system is judged by its principles, never its adherence. So he still saw confusion. He said, you're just talking double talk. I said, okay, do you judge Christianity by Christians? So we must not be confused here. Socialism doesn't fall because of betrayal. No system does. The person who betrays themselves goes to the mud, but the system with its eternal principles keep marching on. If a system fell because of betrayal, Christianity would have been finished with Judas. At least Judas had the dignity to hang himself. Ah. <laughs> Some of these who betray socialism don't have that dignity. Gorbachev still runs around speaking and I'm picking up 30 pieces of silver everywhere. Yeah. So uh, socialism is an economic system and there can only be two in the world, capitalism or socialism, because every economic system must answer one fundamental question. Who will own and control the wealth of the country? Who will own and control the means of production? The question can only be answered two ways. Either a few will own or everyone will own. It's as simple as that. And under capitalism, we say, please summarize what we might have. No, I'm going. I thought I had 20 minutes. It's my time. I thought I had 20 minutes. I was going by the clock. How much time do I have left? I'm sorry, maybe I'm off. That's what I thought I did. I was watching you. Now I'm watching my clock. I'm a responsible. I'm rev revolutionary. I go by time. <laughs> Stop my clock. Thank you. Matter of fact, I can say it in two words black power. <laughs> <laughs> and today we've gone to one Pan Africanism. <laughs> yeah. So there are only two economic systems, and it's going to be capitalism or socialism. Capitalism is a backward system, there's no need to discuss it. 
certainly anyone who's been made a slave by capitalism ought to be hesitant in trying to support the system. But as a conscious African, I must be against capitalism, and I must, of course, seek to destroy it. So in, when you speak of Pan-Africanism, you must understand you speak of socialism. And we want to underline there's only one socialism out here, and that's scientific socialism, whose principles are abiding and universal. There's no such thing as African socialism, Chinese socialism, Russian socialism, Arab socialism. There's only one socialism. The confusion arises over ideology. That is that which guides you towards your objective. So we're saying clearly here, Pan-Africanism is not an ideology. It is an objective. It is an achievable. Pan-Africanism is the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. All we want is a unified continent with a socialist system. That's all. But you know Africa is the richest continent in the world. When she's properly organized, she'll be the most powerful. Yeah, of course. Of course. And me, all I want is power. <laughs> I'm not like others. I don't want money. I don't want popularity. I just want the power I'm supposed to get. That's all. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> conscious, becoming conscious is linked to mobilization and organization, something we mentioned last year. We must make clear distinctions between mobilizers and organizers. To be an organizer, you must be a mobilizer. But being a mobilizer doesn't make you an organizer. Much confusion is to be found here. Malcolm X was a great mobilizer. He was a great organizer. Martin Luther King was a great mobilizer. He was not a great organizer. These facts can be easily seen from King and Malcolm. When Malcolm went to a place, he left a mosque. When King went to demonstrations, he broke down desegregation and he moved on. As a matter of fact, King was not concerned with organization to the point that even though he was the most popular Baptist preacher in America without the shadow of a doubt and probably beyond the shadow of a doubt the most loved, he could not become president of the Baptist National Baptist uh, Convention. Yeah, so many of them. The National Baptist Convention. <laughs> As a matter of fact, if my memory serves me correctly now, and I remember it was Mohammed Speaks that uh, carried the article on the front page in 1964 when King tried to become president of the National uh, Baptist Convention, there was so much confusion there that a minister was actually put, pushed off the stage and died in his trouble. Yeah. And of course, King lost. The man who won was a reactionary man by the name of Jackson. He never did nothing for the people, never cared about the people, this was a pork chop minister who used their money to put gas in his big Cadillac. But he was organized. But he was organized. We say that we must come to know the difference between mobilization and organization because the enemy will use mobilization to demobilize us. Mobilization is very easy. Very, very easy. Because since we're people who are instinctively ready to respond against acts of injustice, anytime there's one little act of injustice, we can blow it up and we'll find people who come and make some mass demonstration around it. Miss Sally lost her job. Let's rally. She'll get her job back. People will come and rally. So-and-so got kicked out of school because the teacher's unjust. The unjust. The people will come and rally. They will come to rally at issues. And this is what mobilization does. It mobilizes people around issues. Those of us who are revolutionary are not concerned with issues. We're concerned with the system. The difference must be properly understood. 
The difference must be properly understood. Mobilization usually leads to reform action, not to revolutionary action. If we would look scientifically at the October 16th million and more march, we would see clearly that this was a mobilized event, not an organized event. We must know clearly the difference between mobilization and organization. One of the characteristics of mobilization is that it is temporary. Organization is permanent and eternal. Clear differences must be made because the unconscious can usually be captured easily around one-issue items, around mobilization items, but it's hard to catch them around organization. But these unconscious must be brought to organization. We must transform mobilization to organization. We say the enemy will come and use mobilization to demobilize us. Many brothers and sisters who've been to the Million and More March will say to you, I was there. Well, what are you doing today, my sister? I was there. There weren't too many sisters out there, but you know, with a million brothers together, you know where I had to be. I was there. <laughs> and then, of course, you find brothers, yeah, I was there. I was there. I helped you. What are you doing today, brother? If we're not careful, we allow mobilization to become events. The struggle is never an event. It's a process, a continual, eternal process. <laughs>